Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 92 for June the 5th, 2012, from lovely Victoria, British Columbia, the capital of the fine province of BC. Uh, my guest this week is Michael Argast. He's back for a little reunion podcast. We've got the privilege of both being speakers at a security event for the government today. And uh, welcome back, Michael. It's been about a year, I think, since you've the last one on the chat chat. Yeah, it's great to finally uh, to get a chance to do a guest speaking slot with you. Um, yeah, we'll have to pencil these in more often once in a while. Uh, it's it's been uh, there's chat chats have been sporadic this spring, and then I, between my travel and uh, coordinating with other people to record things, it's been rather challenging. But we're going to get back to the, kind of our normal security format uh, this week, and the topics uh, we want to start out with. I mean, we can't really not talk about flame, although I would like to kind of not talk about flame. But it's a marketing bonanza. It, it uh, well, I think some of the marketing's backfired a little bit. There was a lot of backlash about the hype over Flame because, uh, and I'm one of the people that uh, agrees with some of that backlash. And that you know, yes, as a researcher, it's some interesting malware and has some interesting bits and pieces. But the broader community shouldn't be that interested, considering we're talking about infection rates in the hundreds of machines yeah. compared to. Uh, even the Mac malware situation infecting hundreds of thousands of machines, which is a much more important thing for the public to be concerned about. Especially um, since most Macs aren't protected these days, but that's a separate discussion. Yeah, I mean, as an IT professional, I don't think it's as important because I think as an IT professional, we should be worried about doing our jobs and protecting our assets. Um, as a, If we were political pundits, there's a lot to talk about with things like Flame. But yeah. The thing I think about Flame, I don't really even think about Flame necessarily as malware in the traditional sense. I mean, we've known for some time that you know, the way the bad guys operate is they take control of the machine and then they bring down a tool set, right? And, you know, those tool sets vary from, you know, attacker to attacker. And it looks like there's a specific tool set here that's fairly robust and well-developed and gives the attacker a lot of capabilities. But, the you know, it's, it's not like this is some new innovation. We know that attackers have been using these tool sets for some time once they get control of an interesting host. And uh, so it's not really news except for the fact that it's a politically interesting area it's you know it's got a lot of press and it's got a cool name right so. well yeah every time you get a malware that's named you know you're in trouble you're you're you get out the uh, pr machine but in this case i think maybe it is good for there to be some awareness i mean i think there's naivete or in the area of oh wow a government's doing this i mean if a government wasn't doing this i would be more surprised and in fact i would be embarrassed i mean uh, to a degree I'm, and i'm not arguing that governments should write malware and on and on and on but when you consider the alternative in a lot of these cases of putting a spy on the ground putting human lives in jeopardy dropping a bomb on a nuclear development facility rather than dropping a malware bomb um, the alternatives are a lot more despicable potentially and so uh, it, it's up to the people in charge to make those decisions and if garden variety criminals are able to write spyware to access my bank account, it is a bit foolish to think that that's not a smarter way to spy yeah. than to send someone into a facility and steal paperwork. Yeah. And I don't think we're seeing genies out of Pandora's box in the same way we saw with Stuxnet, for example. With Stuxnet, it really kind of raised a profile of concern and awareness of the fact that these SCADA environments and these kind of control systems are vulnerable. Right. Right? Infrastructure vulnerability. Infrastructure vulnerability. It raised that to a new profile level. This, I mean... You know, we we know that these toolkits have these toolkits that are similar like this have been in use for some time. The specific mechanism that was used that you were talking about the Microsoft vulnerability, relatively easy to patch. Um, so th there doesn't seem to be like a lot that's going to dramatically change what we have to deal with day in day out from a security practitioner's perspective. 
No, and, and, and the other part is, uh, you know, around the lack of detection in the AV industry. You know, oh, this has been out there for years and you guys haven't detected it. And, and that's absolutely correct, of course. But, it, you know, not all of our research is reactive, but a lot of our research is reactive. And the bottom line is, again, if you are a government, if this is from a state-sponsored attack of some sort, it would be a bit naive, again, to think that they haven't studied the security of their adversaries. If the American government, if the Times story about Stuxnet turns out to be true, that Obama ordered it and George Bush ordered it and all this kind of stuff um, years ago, you know, they not only knew every employee that worked in those facilities, they knew every piece of equipment and how it was wired and they, you know, all this kind of stuff. So to think that you, if you're designing malware, aren't going to do enough research to know that government entity X uses vendor Y and then set up vendor Y and ensure that it's not going to detect what you're doing, um, it would be foolish. And, and back to Stuxnet, like, you know, we detected that proactively with our product, but we weren't running in the facility that they were targeting. So they didn't have to worry about us detecting it because it wasn't ever supposed to get out in the wild. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that's a point I hadn't seen brought up a lot, but I think it's something to think about. Um, you know, if, if garden variety criminals are trying to use virus toll, to do this type of thing, you can expect a professional organization to... With the resources of a nation state. With the race, resources of a nation state to take it to another level. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if the, somebody who's talking about some alleged malware that is tied to the U.S. government maybe using the GPL, which is a license violation, <laughs> uh, there could be some interesting fallout there if there was ever attribution. But uh, you I, know. I was more interested in the time story aspect of, you know, what's the liability of if a nation state does take action um, and it becomes attributable to them? In terms of introducing uh, new types of vulnerabilities and threats into the wild, you know, it's one thing that's when it's the bad guys, criminal organization doing it. It's a whole other thing. Um, government's got deep pockets to go after as well. Yeah, I mean, if the Stuxnet story is true, uh, you know, four of the five vulnerabilities it utilized were zero days, and many of them are still the most popular vulnerabilities we detect in Sophos Labs today being used by garden variety malware. Uh, because we're just that bad at patching still. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. Which I, minor segue that's not on our list today, but um, on that topic, you know, a lot of uh, vendors, including us, have talked over the last year about our surprise at the fact that Comficker is one of the number one detections for all AV products in, in, the, uh, in the market. And Microsoft released some research in their latest security intelligence report uh, saying that most of those infections are happening because of the guessable passwords that Comficker used. So, those of us that might have speculated, including myself, saying, ah, we're so terrible at patching, we still haven't put MSO867 on all of our machines. It turns is out we're not still horrible at passwords. True. We're still horrible at passwords, exactly. It's not so much uh, the patching in this case that's causing people to remain vulnerable to Comficker. So, and the numbers are getting way down as well. I believe Comficker infections are under the 2 million mark now, um, which means it's about 80 to 90% cleaned up. Uh, and four years that it's been in the wild, almost four years, well, yeah. three and a half years. But uh, a little bit better than the Android uh, ice cream sandwich adoption rate. But well, yeah. I mean, I'm an Android customer, that wishes I could have it. But of course, by the time you add, yeah, we won't go there. Uh, I saw an interesting proposal by our friend Moxie Marlin Spike um, that was submitted to the IETF, and actually. To be in fairness to Google, Google submitted a very similar standard that's just a different way of doing the same thing back in December. Uh, I guess they're kind of competing proposals to uh, the IA Internet Standards community. community. But uh, it's called TAC. And the idea of TAC is the ability for an organization to digitally sign their own certificates, their own SSL certificates, 
to, to guard against uh, certificate authority compromise and also to uh, guard against uh, trust issues that, that are inherent with the certificate authority system. And I, the, the idea behind it is um, I run a web server, secure.sophos.com. The first time you connect to me, your browser checks with the certificate authority. In our case, it's, um, I can't remember, but global sign, sign software certificates. So your browser will check with global sign just like it does now to see if that certificate's been signed correctly and it, it looks like it really is Sophos. Now that you've done that, um, I hand you a public key to validate my certificate, my web server does, and I say, here, store this Sophos public certificate. I signed my SSL cert with it so you can validate that I, in fact, did ask for this certificate and it's me. And so, so far, it's just overhead. But then you come back a week later and when you come back, you retrieve my certificate and you look in your database and you say, do I have any keys from Sophos? Oh, I have a key from Sophos. Let me check and see if the certificate I got is signed by that key. So I know it was actually not just issued by a CA, but issued by a CA and then certified by the company I'm talking to to genuinely be theirs and in, and in use for their purposes. So this um, is kind of an extension of the built-in certificates that Google's been doing in their Chrome browser that automatically has a cert that knows that Gmail should be this cert. Uh, but it takes it and it kind of empowers everyone to do it. And it makes it far more scalable. You know, pinning specific certs in Google Chrome is an impractical way to deal with hundreds of millions of certificates. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? So the thing I like about it is you're transparently increasing the security of the user over time without requiring really any user interaction, which is a, is a powerful thing from a security perspective. I like the fact that it's scalable and broad. Um, I wonder if Marlon's idea and Google's idea are going to commingle and get the best out of the two. I'm, I'm not sure what value the Google idea brings over Marlon's. I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm under the impression that that's the case. In fact, one of the authors of Google's proposal was marked as an official reviewer on the Moxie Marlin Spike proposal as well, suggesting that he gave feedback yeah. in the process of developing it. So they will converge, I imagine. Yeah, and hopefully um, because it's coming from um, Moxie rather than um, you know Google specifically, we'll see rap more rapid adoption in uh, other browsers, etc. My only concern with it is it feels a little bit like we're kind of plugging fingers in the SSL dike, right? Well, and this is a step toward... Uh, decentralizing authority, which is what Moxie wants to do, and obviously not what the certificate organizations, the certificate authorities want to do, but it's a compatible intermediate step, and that's where we've had problems before. I mean, Moxie's ideas around um, convergence, as he called it, and all this kind of are a replacement and difficult to implement, and there were some technical challenges like working inside of corporate organizations behind pay portals, mm -hmm. uh, this kind of stuff. So this means that if your browser knows how to do it and the other end knows how to do it, they can negotiate as part of that handshake and just do it. Yeah. And if you don't, you can still use a legacy browser that doesn't support it or you can turn it off and never support it. Or as an organization that's hosting a secure site, decide that you think it's stupid and you don't want to manage signing your own things and it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So I like that. I like the idea that it's, that I could start using it tomorrow if I wanted. It doesn't break anything. Mm -hmm. Um, sort of like, I don't know if you've seen the, um, um, what they call speedy or SPDY acceleration protocol for, sure. uh, for web surfing. And that's another one. That's just an extension that's there. And if your site can support it, great. Um, no real cost. Of course, we always have to worry about the extend and extinguish, uh, challenges. But, you know, and I'm generally a fan of the idea of this decentralized, you know, the kind of circle of trust rather than, you know, a specific authority that we have to kind of inherit all trust out of. Because, you know, kind of back to our, who do we really trust? Stuxnet conversation earlier, right? 
you know, some of those CAs, we've seen with Dignotar and all this kind of stuff, fall under jurisdictions where we don't necessarily want to extend that trust. Most governments in the world possess a CA. Um, Not all, but most. And uh, I'm not really trustworthy of any government, not even my own. Yeah, don't trust the Chinese, let alone the Americans. Right. Right. I mean, there's issues there. And, uh, you know, the the other thing I, I kind of like is that if we can get to a point where there's good reason to trust that certificates are accurate and authentic, I want to take that option away from my mom and dad. I want to take that option away from people who don't have any idea what this stuff means. So if I can get to the point where I can say, there's not a thing that pops up that says, do you wish to proceed? Do you understand the risks? I want it to say, this site's been compromised, and that's that. You cannot connect. And uh, that puts the onus on organizations operating their servers to do it properly, but that's where the responsibility lies, with IT professionals whose job it is to secure their connectivity and their platform. Now, it's not my mom's job, it's not my brother's job, it's not my sister's job. Um, so I want enough faith that I can force a decision. Yeah. Um, and yeah. not keep providing ways for people to make the wrong choice. Yeah, I mean, as much as there's importance with user awareness where we can make security invisible, transparent, and effective, that's the better approach. And that's a great segue to do not track. Ah, Internet Explorer. Uh, you know, I have to give a thumbs up to Microsoft here to... Um, take the policy of putting do not track by default in IE 10, I believe it is. Yeah, and it's unclear whether IE 10 is going to be available on Windows 7, um, but it certainly will be part of Windows 8, the big bucket of tablet fail. Um, <laughs> and uh, sorry, I had to, I shouldn't have said that. That's very rude. Microsoft's a partner of ours, but I, I did decide to load Windows 8 on my bare iron uh, machine at home this weekend and specifically wanted to check out IE 10 in the new release preview with the do not track. Yeah. And this type of stuff. And uh, I'm sorry, if it's too hard that I don't know how it works and I can't make it do stuff, mm-hmm. that's not a beta bug. That's a design issue. Yeah. And uh, on a tablet, it looks like it will probably be brilliant. Um, but IE10 on the other, so the problem with I, you know, it only being IE10 is Windows only, which I know you happen to be a Mac uh, household at, in your personal life. Yeah. Um, and maybe Windows 8 only. I mean, Microsoft's saying they're going to release it for Windows 7. Yeah, I think we're still in long haul as it relates to Do Not Track. I mean, I think we're not seeing a lot of websites adopted, and you mentioned Twitter earlier. Um, You know, I I think unless there is some forceful legislation and other things that are going to really start throwing this um, the right way, um, we're going to continue to see people try to work their way around it. You know, Google is is going to do everything they can to maintain their ad revenue, Um, and that's not just not putting on Do Not Track on their Chrome browser, but not supporting it with their ad networks. Well, do you like having a free internet largely? I like having a free internet largely. Um, I mean, and you do work for a telecom company, so you probably get a more discounted <laughs> rate on your internet access than I do. But yeah. um, the point being, people have to consider this too. Like, how, I, I, how do we pay for our sites? Yeah. Right. I mean, the advertising is a, an important part of it. Maybe they don't need to track us in order to properly advertise and uh, you know still display ads to us. But there are a lot of questions to be answered there. And Users that um, have been spreading around this bogus chain letter on Facebook um, suggesting that people need to post a, their own privacy policy to their wall so the U.S. government can't read their post. <laughs> I won't even get into the absurdity of that, but the idea that people are doing that shows you that they don't understand at all the yes. economy of the Internet. They don't understand that if Google says they're going to provide me email for free with a service called Gmail, I'm paying for that somehow. Now, how am I paying for it? Every You're time paying you for it with your attention. What you And you have to decide. Each time you want to do business with someone, you go, I like being connected with my friends on Facebook. So that means Facebook's providing me with a service. It's a very expensive service for them to operate. How am I paying for it? Well, I'm paying for it because I'm giving the rights to all this content 
to them and their advertisers. Now, well, you, and if I actually, you don't like I, that. A privacy statement of your own doesn't fix that. I, you, I prefer the analogy of it. If you're not paying for it, you're not the customer. In the right. case of you're Google, the product. you're the product, right? In the case of Google and Facebook, you're the product. And, you know, but that being said, I think there needs to be more awareness and visibility to what's going on here, right? I, you know, this, I may or may not want to be tracked across the internet. I certainly don't want apps on iOS to get my address book unexpectedly, right? And so, you know, we need to have better visibility into what's going on here. And I think most people have no idea just how prolific tracking is as it relates to their activities on the internet, right? Yeah, and, and on the mobile thing, I'll just segue into a, a brief uh, plug um, for something I haven't mentioned on the podcast before, but we do now have a free beta Android security product, and just to let people know, the, the security aspect of it will remain free after it comes out of beta. It's not just free because it's in beta. We, we will continue to give it away. We will be adding other enterprise features to it in the future that we will charge customers for if they want for management purposes and things, but the, the product as it stands today that's free will remain free. And one of the cool things it does on your Android is it provides you with a privacy summary of all your apps, and it shows you what that app can do, and then it explains in plain language yeah. what those permissions on an Android reflect that that per, you know that company has on your device. And and I think that's a pretty uh, neat option. I'm sure we're not the only ones doing that, but I didn't know that uh, the first time I saw the product was when I got the beta loaded on my tablet, and I was like, wow, that's cool. Like you know, it needs a little bit of polish. It is a beta, but. I like that idea. It makes me feel better about looking at my games and going, actually, this one game wants an obscene amount of stuff. Screw it. For a free game, I don't, I'm don't. i not willing to give you all that stuff. I'll just play my, you know, Angry Birds wants this, and this wants I'll, this. I'll pay a buck for the app instead. And, well, I'll, and that's the other thing. Give me an option. You yep. know, Give me an option to buy my way out of it. Give me privacy on Facebook, and I will pay you $5 a month to use your service. Yeah, and I won't use Google Plus games for that very reason, because every time you load one of them, or Facebook for that matter, it's like, we want access to everything it's like no you know what i'm willing to spend a buck over here for my entertainment rather than give away my privacy i would also like to see apple and google and others consider refining the granularity of their privacy and that uh, having required and optional permissions that the app wants instead of making me reject the entire app because of one goofy thing it wants to do you know maybe it's required that it have access to the cell phone maybe it's required that it have access to turn off the screensaver but then it's optional to have access to my address book. And maybe I want that feature. Maybe I want to share my high scores with my friends, send it through my address book. I might like that. But let me decide the permissions for my iOS apps or my Google apps on my Android device. And I think that strikes a nice did, compromise. Do you think your mom would be able to understand that, though? Because, again, we're back to the how much complexity does it make sense for us to design into these solutions for them to actually work? Um, I think as long as they're plainly worded and it's about... Uh, policy decisions and not security decisions, I think it's okay, mm -hmm. right? You know, if you're telling me um, why you want access to my address book, and, and, and I think Facebook actually does this in their app now on the iPhone, I was playing with it, and it, it goes, if you do not provide us permission to your address list, we will not be able to do the following things that you might benefit from. Yep. Would you, are you sure you want to disable this or that, I don't know, that kind of thing, right? As, as, as much as Facebook are privacy-sucking bastards, I think they're getting better at clearly communicating um, what privacy they intend to suck, and uh, you know that's that's a including changing their privacy policy into not being called a privacy policy anymore. It's our <laughs> data usage policy at DOP, and uh, that's very clear of them that there is no privacy on Facebook. This is how they're going to sell you the product. Yeah. Well, we're out of time, Michael, but it was great having you join me again. And even though we work only a few blocks away, we only get together to do podcasts when we have to fly somewhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, that concludes Software Security Chat Chat episode ninety two. Uh, as always, uh, for the latest news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. 
All of our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com on iTunes or via RSS. And until next time, stay secure.